Welcome to episode number 16 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're looking at creating a worldwide global community around workplace safety and industries handling combustible dust and powdered materials. Today's episode, we're doing an interview with Jill Plourd, an application specialist with Bike Canada. And Jill's got an extensive background in explosion protection design and actual application of explosion protection systems in various industries. So in this interview, we'll actually be going through a specific example. I give Jill a, a specific case of a um, bag unloading station into a hopper that goes to a mill, that goes to a cyclone that then the fines get fed through to a dust collector. And pretty much to say, starting from that information, you walk into a facility or you get a call, what does it look like to design a explosion protection system from the ground up? Talking with Jill, he mentioned previously before the episode that companies often make the mistake of trying to add the exposure protection systems into existing um, lines or after the, the installation is done in the equipment and that it really can save a lot of money to do it from the, the start and initial phases of, of putting that equipment together. So this, this really gives the idea to the, the steps that are involved in that whole process from what inputs needed, what calculations are done, what some of the options might be what it looks like to have that in operation, what maintenance might need to be done. And at the end of the day, what do we do when, when you actually have a, an explosion that's properly mitigated? What does it look like to reset that system? So I want to thank Jill for being on, sharing his experience. This was a, a really insightful conversation and a little bit of a, a step away from some of the high-level discussions we've been having on the podcast recently. This one's really down and dirty, nuts and bolts. These are the steps to actually solve a real problem in a dust handling operation. So I want to say thank you, as always, for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I hope you really enjoy today's interview and episode with Jill. Welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. In today's interview, we're talking with Jill Plourd about explosion protection and actually the applications end where we're designing systems with explosion protection in mind. I think it's going to be a really interesting episode for the audience, something that's more specific with a given example and given application um, than we've had in the last couple of episodes. I'm really excited to have Jill on the show. Jill, thanks for, for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Looking forward to answering any questions that anybody has uh, in regards to explosion protection. Excellent. So I talked with Jill a couple times. I actually met him in Kansas City this year at the ISHMI Conference, International Symposium on Hazards Prevention and Mitigation of Industrial Explosions. Maybe the longest conference name that we know, but that's what it's called. Um, it's in Kansas City, actually being hosted by Fike. Jill is a senior application specialist with Fike in Canada for over the last 12 years. And I really want to have him on the show because through some of the conversation we had there, one of the things that he mentioned was that too many times explosion protection is really kind of bolted on as an afterthought. It ends up being quite a bit more expensive for the companies to, to put in as that afterthought. So this episode, we want to talk about, well, we have an example application. What does it look like to, to put in explosion protection from the very front? And what are the steps involved for that? Before we get into that, Jill, maybe can you take a couple moments and just describe what your role looks like with FIKE today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been working with FIKE Canada for over 12 years now, mainly in the explosion protection uh, application design. So my general role is to review a piece of equipment that a customer has a the hazardous dust inside, whether that be a dust collector, cyclone, silo, um, we've got screw conveyors, conveyor belts, um, and determine 
one, what type of protection is required, but also what makes sense uh, from an ongoing maintenance standpoint. Um, so minimizing the risk of, of and the effects of an ex unprotected explosion. And at the same time, you know, that ensuring that the customer just doesn't have a box of parts given to him that he actually understands the risks and how everything, uh, you know, how that safety bag is, is going to protect his equipment, his plant and his, his personnel. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I thought that we might jump into kind of example. Um, we mentioned before jumping on the call that maybe you'd use a, a flour mill as we know that the, the hazards are there. So say we have a process that involves a, a hopper, the product would come in in bags, be dumped into a hopper, that would go into, say, a mill or a grinding system, which would go to a cyclone to, to get the end product out. And then the fines from the cyclone would be would be shunted off to a, a dust collector. Would this be sort of typical of a kind of a more simple end of the process that you would see in your work? Yeah, that's probably the simplest start to finish overall of, of, of that type of process. So what does it look like then? We, as a company, we we call Fike, we bring Jill in and say, this is what we want to design. This is what we need to design for our facility. What's kind of step one? So step one would be for anybody designing a system, you really want to have an understanding of the explosive dust that you are handling. So if the customer hasn't had his dust or tested yet, then we're going to really recommend that he goes and has the explosibility testing perform so that we know what, what numbers we're working with instead of assuming or referring to a number that might be published in, in, a, in, in an NFPA 60 example. Particle size plays a huge role. So understanding the actual um, characteristics of that dust is, is going to be the big step one. The next step that we want to look at is how close all these pieces of equipment, like what, within what type of proximity are the, the equipment related to each other. So uh, you've got your mill, you're pneumatically conveying that into the cyclone. The cyclone is then being aspirated from the dust collector. Uh, you want to take a look at the duct lengths between the cyclone and the dust collector. One of the most important and typically over, or an oversight that we see is a lot of people focus on protecting the hazard within a certain enclosure. So they'll look at putting venting on a bag house or, or maybe put a suppression system on, on a cyclone. But they don't necessarily look at how that impacts the isolation design. If you don't have enough distance between the protected vessel and the interconnected vessel, then you may not be able to stop that explosion from propagating from one to the other. So step two is really kind of getting a general feel of what's the layout of the process and, and take some measurements and, and make sure that we factor that into the, to the design, uh, the final design that we're going to be proposing. That makes sense. So we're really starting with testing our dust and characterizing our dust. And then step two is looking at the facility layout a bit to make sure the equipment's not too close together. And just really, I'd imagine at the later stages are some important issues with, with citing the different equipment and, and how that is protected. Do you take measurements for the combustible dust at different parts in the assembly line or do you just take it as is when it's coming in the, the bag system or is there a, a process there it should be followed? If you had a very long process where the product coming in might be a little bit, have a little bit of a moisture content, a higher moisture content to it, and then you're milling it down and then it goes to maybe through a shaker or a sifter, then I, I would I would be looking at different uh, 
testing the sample at different parts of the process only because if you're trying to make, you might have had like a, a temporary storage bin. So you've, you've put the product through the mill, you then convey that into a, a, a bin, like a way bin. And then from there, you start feeding your process and it you know, gets aspirated through a, a cyclone or, or filter receiver. So the KST of the dust in the end dust collector, which is really the driest material that you're aspirating from the process, might be significantly less in the in the way bin at the beginning of the process. So depending on how complex the the entire uh, manufacturing process is, you may or may not want to have your sample tested at multiple stages. Generally speaking, everybody starts with what's in the dust collector because at least you know that's the worst case. And if you do have a very high explosive dust in the dust collector and you know that it's it's generally coming, the raw product is, is, a, is a wetter product. Uh, if we think of wood dust, for example, then you may find the first third of your process is not even combustible. And then once you've milled it and you started heating it up a bit, it has a certain KST range. And at the end of the, the, the manufacturing process where you're, you're now you're doing maybe like a sanding process or a cutting process and the product's drier, you have an even another KST range for that particular dust. So it depends on the product. It depends on how complex the process is. Um, but general rule of thumb, start with the bag house and then work your way backwards if you feel that it's going to benefit uh, from a cost or maybe a system complexity standpoint. Right. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's really helpful and kind of insightful way to, to think about it. So in our simple system with flour and, and going through a mill and through a cyclone, what's, what's step three in the process if, they're, if we want to call it step three? So step three is, is going over the options with the customer. Um, every piece of equipment can be protected either with explosion venting or using an explosion suppression system. Um, some of them can be built for containment. So really getting a feel from, from the customer on, on what type of protection that they're looking for. Uh, some companies, they, they just, they're, they're pro-venting. So they'll do anything they need to in order to vent the equipment safely, whether that means they, they look at a, a flameless venting or they duct it outside, maybe duct it up to the roof. But that's just their Meth, their preferred method of protection is, is, is venting. And some other customers say they don't want to deal with a fireball at all, and they just want to have everything contained within the vessel, so they look at a, an explosion suppression system. So kind of getting a gauge of what's their preference and, and also presenting both options is, is what we generally do, not just to show the costs, uh, differences between the, the two type of protection methods, but also to outline what's going to happen during a deflagration, what to expect if you vent and what to expect if you suppress. Could those have different impacts on how much downtime you'd have or how much even cost of, of new parts that you might need for the safety system or for your, your other systems? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I don't want to sound wishy-washy on all, all these answers, but it's, again, it will depend on the size of the equipment and the complexity of the system. I view it as if you have a simple bag house and you have an explosion and you have an explosion vent, you must consider the fact that you will have a fire in that bag house afterwards. So there's a, like a 99% guarantee the bags are going to burn. You're going to have to deal with that fire inside the, the, the vessel afterwards. 
Whereas with a, a suppression system approach, you're detecting and suppressing the explosion before it fully develops. So there, there may be a risk that a burning ember remains and, and it might burn, start to burn the bags again after the event, but the, the physics or the, the, the nature of the explosion itself, you're not allowing it to fully develop. So again, depending on the size of the vessel, a simple explosion vent might be a lot cheaper to replace, but then you look at maybe the cost of the filters and, and you, start to out, you start to weigh your options on you know, option A or option B, which is really going to cost more for a rebuild or for downtime. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think we're always going to run into the scenario where it's where it's going to be a cost-benefit analysis, especially if you're talking about these complex pieces of equipment. So we have our, our step three, which really go over the options for protection. If we picked one of those options, maybe we'll move forward with just one of them. So which one do you think this customer selected? So I, let's say customer says, I like to look at explosion venting. So then step four would be uh, making him aware of, of the current codes. So sharing with him the calculations that, that we've performed uh, per the NFP 68 or per the EN standards, uh, if, if it's a European customer. And then going over the fireball dimensions with them, explaining to them the, uh, you know, again, the after effects of an explosion and then looking at the isolation side of the, of the protection. So with an explosion vented vessel, because the explosion is fully developing, you it's, an, it's anticipated that you're going to have uh, faster flame speeds in the propagating, in the, in the connected duct. So then our isolation design, where we're placing the isolation device, that will factor the, the location of that device, obviously. Um, so step four is preparing the calcs, providing the information to the customer, and then, you know, making sure that they understand what is involved with that protection uh, strategy. Okay. So now we have our strategy in place. We've tested our material. We know our KST values and our Pmax values and any of the other important kind of steps in the process. Um, is it worthwhile to, to explain what the calculations look like a bit for either NFPA or the, the, N, the N, EN approach? Like what's that, what's that look like, I guess, to the listener? I realize it's hard to describe through audio, but. It can, it, it can be a long, it might be four or five equations. If, you know, if you have a vessel indoors, it's, it's got a long, it's an explosion vent duct going to the outdoors. It's elevated operating pressures. So there, the code is outlined that there's a, a base model or a base formula and then there's factors that get added to it depending on, you know, you kind of go through a flow chart and say, are you located indoors? Yes, I am. Well, are you venting through a vent duct? Yes, I am. You know, so it kind of guides you through that path. But I think generally speaking, what you're, what you're looking at in these formulas is the volume of the vessel. It, it plays a factor. It's directly related to how fast that explosion is developing within the, the, within the vessel, right? So you, you take the KST that you've tested in a, in a 20 liter sphere or maybe a one cubic meter, and then you apply that to the volume of your vessel and you determine um, what, the, what the rate of pressurize would be inside of that particular vessel during a, a, an explosion. The opening pressure of the explosion vent has a factor on the, the final vent sizing area. The design strength of the vessel itself um, also has a large effect as well. 
which makes sense if you allow more pressure to build up then you don't need as much a, a, as big as an open of an opening for that explosion vent but if you if you have a much larger opening well then you won't have as much pressure build up during that uh, that deflagration so i think we are now on to i realize we didn't actually outline these steps so we're sort of i'm making them up as we go along anyway maybe jill has a plan here um but i think we're on step five so we've selected the the venting is the route we want to go we've done our calculations to figure out what venting is needed we've also done our calculations on i want to say back on isolation that's what i'm looking for what's uh what's the the next step so step five is place a po and allow the the applications engineer to to run the final design uh, calculation so we button up uh, one of the things we do here is we will summarize all the dimensions of the vessel, the operating conditions that the customer has shared, the explosive characteristics of the dust, like anything that was critical to the initial design during quoting. We summarize that all on a single page. We submit that to the customer, have them verify everything, and then they send it back. And, and at that point, now, now everybody's on the same page. We're all working with the exact same numbers. And then we prepare the, the final drawings for for that design. So from a FIKE standpoint, you'll you'll receive a final drawing that shows your piece of equipment uh, with the isolation system on the inlet line. The explosion vent uh, will either be shown on the drawing and there'll be a call out saying this vessel is protected by an explosion vent with a certain burst pressure. And then you get your bill of material and it's a, it's it's an installation drawing for your contractors to to get everything installed on the equipment. And how long might a, an installation like that actually taken man hours to to put on i know that's a could be a very big question but maybe just in our simple system where we're just talking a single simple system uh you're probably i'd say about a week uh, between mechanical and electrical it depends on your your if you're contracting it out or if you have in-house people that are that are going to do the installation but generally speaking uh you're about a week's time and then once you've installed everything then that the a technician comes to site and you know verifies everything and and programs the 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 control panel and everything for you and then flips the key or turn or flips the switch sorry turns the key and and hands it over and says okay your system is now on it's live and your vessel is protected well there we go we now uh wash our hands and we're all done that's right <laughs> um no that's a that's a really great succinct kind of flow through are there any follow-on that needs to be done from this whole process or routine maintenance or what's that look like? Uh, for explosion vents, uh, it's it's more of a visual inspection. So you're, you you want to take a look at the explosion vent, make sure you don't see any signs of damage. There's no, you know, a lot of times there may be birds. If it's located outside, there might be birds that are trying to build a nest in front of the explosion vent. So it's it's, it's a passive device. It's designed to rupture at a certain pressure. And as long as you don't hinder the opening of that explosion vent, then it's going to open when it's called upon. The any active system, then you know you 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 do have to do some uh, per the NFP code. It's a quarterly maintenance, so a technician will come to site and calibrate the detectors, make sure the the panel, the controller, and everything is still functioning uh, in the in the standard that it needs to to function at. And then address any any concerns with the customer if they if they've had any within the last uh, three months you know since the startup. Okay, and I think so. We'll call that 
step six, which would be ongoing maintenance. And I think to kind of close out the whole life cycle. Now I'm running this operation um, and I, I have a, an explosion that happens and everything works as designed. So it was vented properly. It was isolated to my dust collector. We already talked about this a little bit, but um, what does the replacement process look like or the steps to, to get up and running again? The replacement is going to be very similar to the initial startup. So the explosion vent would be removed and a new one would be installed. Uh, the isolation system, if you were if you were using a chemical isolation bottle to do the, the the explosion isolation, then that bottle would be removed and rebuilt as well. So you we would refill it with agent, repressurize the bottle, and and get the customer back up and running. Well, there, yeah, that's. That's the whole process in, in six and a half steps, we'll say. <laughs> yeah, it could, it could take a couple months, but... Uh, <laughs> was... Well, certainly. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and like you mentioned in our, in our conversation before, if you, if you take a proactive approach and think about this at the very start, then you, you won't run into some of these issues that probably cause the, the price to go up, the complexity to go up, the requirements for maintenance and inspection to go up at the end of the day. Even things as simple as having your equipment far enough apart that you can put in isolation. There's probably a lot of examples of that. Can you give any of your, your top tips for things that you've seen that haven't been thought of from the start that, that could cause issues? Yeah, I would. The main thing I'd be focusing on is can you effectively isolate one piece of equipment from the other? Generally speaking, if you have anywhere from 20 to 30 feet of, of duck run, uh, between the two vessels, you sh you should be able to to isolate between the two. That that gives you an adequate distance that you can detect an explosion in one vessel and stop it from getting into the other. Another thing I'd I'd be looking at is the strategic location of your process equipment. If you know that you want to be looking at explosion venting, then it may benefit you from locating some of your dust collectors either outside or near an outside wall um, that could be vented to a safe location. So I've been to many plants where even though the dust collector is outdoors or it might be right beside an outside wall, it's where they're looking to aim the explosion vent is into a parking lot. And obviously that's, you know, that, that's not acceptable per the codes. It's not acceptable from a, a safety standpoint. Like there's, you want to make sure that fireball is, is not going into a location where people could be occupying. That makes sense. And we covered that a bit in, in episode four of the, the podcast, talking about the Nova Scotia Dust Collector Safety Program. And one of the most common issues that they found when going through all the, the wood shops and schools in, in the province, um, well, there are several common things we outlined that in that uh, podcast and you find at dustsafescience.com slash four. But one of them was, was venting to an inappropriate location um, or painting over vents or bolting over vents. We're putting locks on vents. Um, they need to open in order to function properly. And when they do a fireball, um, maybe we'll look to put a video of, of this up with these show notes because a fireball will be ejected most likely from that vent. So you can't have picnic tables in front of it or you know areas where people might be at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, you know, other storage, like if you have a storage shed in the area, some areas will be somewhat excluded. And the important thing is it's, it's, it could be an area where you will work as long as you're not working there while the, the protected vessel is in operation. 
So it could be a locked out fenced off area that you guys may only access, you know, two, three times a year. And when you do that, you have a, a lockout tag out procedure so that you can't, you shut down the bag house before you walk into this blast zone, we'll, we'll call it uh, type of area. And a good example that would be obviously changing out the, the barrels or the, the dust collection dust. Yep. Um, and turning off the equipment before before sending people into that area even working on on the roofs uh, a lot of customers you know they'll they'll jump on to well let's we'll just vent it up through the roof and they may not realize that they might have maintenance people going up there on a regular basis so it's kind of out of sight out of mind you don't think about who's going to be on the roof at any point in time but you may have a leak in one section of the plant and they're going up there to inspect it and meanwhile they're they're working right beside a, an explosion vent uh, that's ducting up through through the roof so it's you know the 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 signs and the 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 barricades are generally applied when you're at ground level but as soon as you get up in the air uh, people tend to forget that you know there could still be people in these areas uh, doing doing something unrelated to the process that is being protected yeah that makes sense and even first responders if you have a fire and you get a firefighter up there um, you shouldn't be able to easily walk where the like the walkway shouldn't go over top the vent correct yep verbally there'd be some sort of barrier stopping people from just going in there you know and 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 working or or otherwise so yeah that was a that's a really great overview of the process of figuring out how to design install and implement exposure protection system from the ground up um, some of the issues that you might run into if you if you don't consider these things first, and even some of the issues that you might run into down the road and what it looks like to do maintenance and replacement on these systems. Is there anything else like uh, that you'd like to, to leave the listeners with from this episode or from your experience? I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I think the important thing, one important thing that I learned is everything explosion protection related, none of this is taught in, in an engineering type program. So nobody goes to school to become an explosion protection application specialist. So these are all things that um, from a protection side, applying the equipment, you, you learn as you, as you do. And one of the big challenges that, that we run into a lot is a customer may be buying, a, if we go back to our mill example, they might be buying the dust collector from OEM number, number one, and the OEM number one is is inform is providing explosion protection, and they say they're going to provide explosion isolation. And then they're buying the cyclone from OEM number two, and they're they're saying the same thing: we're going to protect it and we're going to provide you isolation. But nobody's looking at the overall process, and you know, realizing that maybe these two vessels are located within ten feet of each other. And that even though both companies are saying, you're going to have to put my isolation bottle, you know, 15 feet away, uh, no, that doesn't really become, uh, doesn't get, nobody is aware of it until it's too late, until, until everything's installed and then someone raises their hand and says, well, how does this fit? How does this work? So what I, what I like to recommend to customers is if, if, you, if you're buying a piece of equipment from an OEM and it has protection on it, there is no harm in calling the you know either calling fike or any any of our anybody else in the industry that that's selling the systems and just ask them say hey does this make sense does this seem practical here's my plant layout is this the best way to do this um i don't think anybody gets offended when 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 you're calling to ask a general question the the bottom line here is is it's it's safety 
and I think what's most important is that it's it's done properly and that the the nobody's cutting corners just to make it fit. That's a really good way to think about it. And I I would totally agree. And I've talked to people from lots of people from Fike and from other companies and that's the general consensus is that they just like to be contacted just so they can tell you that if things are going to make sense or not make sense. And that safety is really the the number one and the first thing. And the thing that I like and the reason I recommend that people talk to experts like yourself is that you've seen, you know, this isn't your first flour mill. <laughs> this isn't your first, your first lumber mill. This isn't your first pharmaceutical company um, where, but the, the OEMs, it may not necessarily have that background experience where they've, they've walked to a lot of facilities or they've seen a lot of the issues. That's why it's important to bring in experts like yourself to, to give the, the okay and the, the go ahead on those sort of things. Yeah. And it's all, I mean, it's public info. I think all the NFP codes, the EN codes, everything is publicly available. No one's hiding anything. So if you, you know, just that extra assurance that if, if you call, we'll say Fike and then you run your design through any of our application specialists and, and we're in agreement with how it's being protected, it's that extra safety or sense of comfort that, hey, this is, this is done right. We've crossed all our T's. We've dotted our I's. Okay, let's move forward. You know, everybody can put their head on their pillows uh, comfortably at night type of thing. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And if anyone wants to, to talk to, to Jill more, um, we'll definitely have his contact information in the show notes, which will be at dustsafetyscience.com slash 16. That's the number 16 for this episode. And you can also visit the, the Fike website. Fike is a, a member company with Dust Safety Science, so you can find the profile on there um, or just, just type it into online. And, and these guys know what they're doing. They've been doing it for a long time um, and are, are pretty highly regarded experts in this field. So I just want to say, Jill, thank you again for coming on and look forward to a chance to have you, have you again in the future on the podcast. Sounds good, Chris. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, Jill. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jill Plord of Fight Canada and going over the, the five and a half, as we called it in the interview, or the six steps to designing an explosion protection system. I really learned quite a bit from just going through, okay, this is a simple dust handling operation and what inputs required, what kind of calculations are needed, and what are my options in protecting that piece of equipment, and how can somebody like um, Jill at Fike or, or any of the other companies that might be involved help in designing a safe system for that. If you want to get a hold of Jill or uh, look at the, the Fike Solutions to Explosion Protection, you can do that in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 16 for this episode. And in that show notes, you can leave any comments or thoughts that you have on what topics we should cover in the, in the podcast moving forward, anyone you'd like to actually have, see or have on the podcast. Um, or if you want to be on the podcast yourself, you can reach out in the feedback section there and let us know. As always, I want to thank you for everything you're doing in industries, keeping people safe, designing safe explosion protection systems, and just really working to, to make workplace safer in industries that are handling combustible dust. I hope you have a great and safe week ahead. I look forward to talking next week with our next guest on the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Mm-hmm.